I'd like to welcome everyone. My name is Doug Bondo. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We have, I think, a very important uh, forum today. We have both an important book and an important subject, The Beijing Consensus by Stefan Halper. Obviously, as we look around the world today, we see a number of rising powers. But there is one country that people speak of as being a potential peer competitor to the United States, a country with a growing economy, with greater military capabilities, and as Stefan Halper argues in this book, posing a potential challenge in the idea realm as well. <laughs> we have a, a very good panel here to discuss the uh, issues. I think uh, Stefan has presented us with a very nuanced and sophisticated argument. We have uh, two very important and good uh, discussants as well. I want to introduce everybody at the start, and then we'll move uh, down the panel. Stefan Halper is a senior fellow at the Center for International Studies and a senior fellow at Magdalene College. He's been very involved in American politics, working at both the White House and the State Department in four different presidencies. In fact, uh, our association and friendship goes back many, many years. We met in the Reagan-Bush campaign. I started out on the Reagan side. Steph started out on the uh, Bush side, and we came together and have been friends since, a man I greatly admire and am very pleased to see here at the Institute. Our first discussant will be Bonnie Glazer. Bonnie is a senior fellow with the CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies, where she works on China and Asian issues. She's a senior associate with the CSIS Pacific Forum. She's written widely in a number of uh, publications on China and Asian issues, very well uh, equipped to discuss the issues here. And a uh, second discussant will be Ted Galen Carpenter. Ted is vice president for defense and foreign policy studies here at the Cato Institute. Ted is a, another longtime friend of mine. We've known each other for 20 years or so, working together here. I'm very pleased to be on the same panel with him. He is the author and editor of a number of books, about 18 in total, including books on Korea that we've written together and a book entitled America's Coming War with China, A Collision Course Over Taiwan. So I think we're going to have a very good panel, and Steph will start us out by talking about his book. Thank you. <clears throat> well, thanks very much. I... <clears throat> I'm delighted to be here and to see uh, old friends again, many of whom have traveled a ways. Thank you for coming. Um, why write a book? The answer is because there's a point you wish to make. In this case, the point is that China is rising more rapidly and in different ways than most people think. And while we focus on the economic and the military dimensions of this challenge, a separate, quite serious threat is found in a different dimension. It is ideational. There has emerged a battle of ideas about governance. The Chinese have developed a fast growth, stable, market authoritarian model that is admired uh, in the world beyond the West, and particularly among third world nations. It promises regime leaders governance without the contentious legislatures or challenging media, and it promises the people employment, housing, and a better future. Crucially, it does not promise an open public square or the right of assembly, speech, belief, or association. The public is asked to respect the authorities and stay out of politics. Thus, we have today a deeply rooted clash between systems based upon uh, enlightenment and Confucian values. <clears throat> The matter becomes more interesting in light of the non-Western views of China's example. Uh, 
the words envy and admiration come to mind. With China's rise, a non-Western country now approaches the pinnacle of global power. Even more, the Bank of China, now six times the size of the World Bank, is financing infrastructure and energy development across Africa and Latin America, including to outliers and pariah states. Here, China, in effect, provides a path around the West. In the process, China has made the West its standards and its institutions less relevant. For 30 years, the Chinese have been our economic partners, but they've also been our political rivals. Successful market reforms indicate the Communist Party is not about to crumble, and it is certainly not melting into democracy. What's more, rising China, having survived communism's global demise, has evinced a deliberate self-awareness. China will not become a member of the club. China cannot be housebroken. It marches to its own drummer. The market will not lead to democracy in China. It has chosen a different path and is quite pleased to have done so. It has neither confronted the U.S.-led system nor confronted its worldview in the two decades since the Soviet collapse. What do these trends mean for the idea of the West? What does this mean in the longer term for the primacy, if not the viability, of our values, tolerance, transparency, reason? And what can we expect uh, changes in the values that inform global bodies such as the UN or perhaps the World Court? Can we expect changes in those values in the coming decade? In 1938, another very uncertain time, a diplomat savant said, don't ask only how Bolshevism has changed Russia, but ask how Russia has changed Bolshevism. And so we consider how China has changed communism. Before addressing these issues, allow me to say a few brief words about the military and the economic dimensions of the China challenge. The debate in Washington and Europe on China's rise focuses on two things. First, it asks if China principally represents a military challenge, and then it asks if economic trends, debt, trade, trade balance, are more important. Some believe these issues are manageable. Others see them as unacceptable uh, threats to global and regional security. So what to make of China today? First, a word on the military. Uh, Pentagon estimates that China's total military-related spending in 2008 was approximately $150 billion, giving China the second largest defense budget in the world. Uh, in 2009, Chinese President and Party Leader Hu Jintao said China's military priorities were electronic and cyber warfare capacity in the coming decade, and that includes subsurface warfare, space-based lasers, and systems that integrate command control and communications. In the PLA Air Force, there has been an effective integration of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and it's seen in China's new airborne early warning and control systems. They employ radar te technology that is one full generation ahead of the U.S. E-3C AWACS and E-2C Hawkeye. 
Beijing claims that four of these systems are now operational. On the ground, the PLA is now introducing tactical unmanned aerial vehicles to support their ground forces, although these are relatively unsophisticated. At sea, U.S. analysts believe China may soon challenge the 7th Fleet in the Western Pacific and the 5th Fleet in the Indian Ocean, and indeed there's been a bit of paint rubbed off the bows of warships in both places. China also seeks a zone of control off its east coast to include Taiwan, the Paracels, and the Spratlys, and in the Indian Ocean it's constructing naval facilities, its so-called String of Pearls, from the Straits of Hormuz to the Malaccan and Sambat Straits in the east. Clearly for Beijing, military modernization is a serious business. Trends paint a grim picture in the Pacific and beyond, and they lead some people to believe in Washington that a confrontation is a possibility. Yet, Chinese military development might accurately be described as a just-in-case capacity to puncture, to puncture. Uh, American battle space. We're told that uh, China's hopes to leapfrog American military hardware with the development of high-tech close-in weapons that target American vulnerabilities, namely our reliance on communications and intelligence, that that is their priority. Secretary of Defense Gates put China's military in perspective when he said these developments give cause for concern, but not much more than that. Now briefly, the economic challenge. Aside from the large U.S. debt held by Beijing, there's concern in Washington about the negative trade balance, the artificially low value of the yuan, cyber theft, dumping, and the effects of Chinese direct investment in the U.S. economy. That said, China's position as an American creditor is not simple. The large amount of credit Beijing has extended to Washington, in fact, also presents a serious liability for China. A measure of stability is found, is found uh, in what has become a marriage of liabilities in which China has as much interest in keeping the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar stable as Americans themselves. The Chinese government buys American debt for the simple reason that this sustains the macroeconomic engine that Beijing relies upon. Chinese investment in American bonds keeps American interest rates low, making credit easier to obtain and generating a pool of capital for Americans to continue buying consumer products, that is, Chinese consumer products. And in this sense, American consumers are the lifeblood of the Chinese economy. Further, Beijing buys American assets to maintain the value of the dollar which in turn protects the value of its Treasury bond investments. Today, roughly $798 billion of China's foreign exchange portfolio is held in liquid U.S. dollar assets, uh, part of which are Treasury bonds. The Chinese government allowed the dollar to fall significantly against the yuan that would wipe out billions of dollars of value in its coffers. Does Beijing have leverage in this domain? Yes. But Washington has powerful countervailing leverage. The U.S. could limit or threaten to limit U.S. direct investment in China or apply high tariffs that would hit China's export sector very hard, casting millions out of work and injecting the prospect of chaos in the, in the cities. 
And on that point, while Treasury has delayed its uh, April 15th report on Chinese currency manipulation, make no mistake, <clears throat> China does manipulate its currency. Uh, it effectively exports unemployment and prevents others around the world from climbing out of the recession as they otherwise might. Uh, and an accounting on this is overdue. Bottom line, can Beijing harm the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer? Yes, but not irreparably, and not nearly as much as the U.S. Uh, can exert pressure on China. Now, let me turn to a more serious problem. Uh, not that the first two issues aren't serious. They are very, but I want to go to the core of my argument. A more serious problem arising from China's ownership of American bonds is how this stable system of mutual dependence has weakened America's voice on the global stage. Hillary Clinton in Beijing told journalists and officials that pressing China on other issues, quotes, like transparency or Tibet or human rights, quote, cannot interfere with addressing the global economic crisis. The same message was conveyed when President Obama visited Beijing and in his low-key, no-TV meeting with the Dalai Lama in Washington in February. Here we see an uncomfortable new reality in the way Washington has perceived its relationship with Beijing. Economic interdependence blunts American expression on many of the values and issues that underpin the U.S.-led liberal order such as progress on human rights, the rule of law, free speech. Harvard's Joe Nye tells us that it's not whose army wins, it's whose story wins. And in the all-important global information space, the American story is doing poorly. Moreover, certain key assumptions made over the last two decades are proving to be wrong. Contrary to the soothing phrase advanced by World Bank President Robert Zellick, that China is becoming a stakeholder in the global community. The reality is more complex. China has indeed been helpful on a range of matters. North Korea, nuclear program, the piracy in the Gulf, providing UN peacekeepers in many places. Meet Mr. Hyde and know that Dr. Jekyll follows closely behind. Why? Because certain requirements make it impossible for China to embrace, to embrace Western norms in its dealings with the resource-rich developing world. The problem, the problem is rooted in what has been, been called China's growth trap. China has to grow at 8%, the minimum required to provide jobs, housing, and stability to recent graduates in the rural millions flooding into the East Coast cities. Failure to achieve this carries the real risk of chaos, a nightmare in a country of 1.3 billion people. Remember, we might multiply by 1.3 to say how huge China is, but China's leaders have to divide by 1.3 to allocate all of the resources. So are there enough jobs and houses and so on? This is a problem. To grow... China must find and secure steady long-term sources of energy, including copper, iron, and zinc, cobalt, and timber. A latecomer to these markets and spurred by unprecedented demand, China must offer better terms than the established players 
and it does that in several ways. First, it uses its massive $2 billion plus of hard currency uh, reserves to provide low or no interest long-term loans or grants to resource-rich governments. China can affect these transactions in three months, while it can take the World Bank as much as five years. It normally commits to road and rail construction to move the resources to the port. It agrees to schools and hospitals that otherwise would probably not be built. And it makes large private payments to chiefs of state, often, uh, to be sure that everything goes smoothly. More importantly, China pledges non-interference in the internal affairs of these nations. It is not concerned with good governance issues, rule of law, transparency, environmental questions, labor conditions, or the lack or presence of an open public square. China is concerned about one thing, extracting the resource contracted for in an efficient, timely way. Over time, the effect of this embrace is to marginalize the principles and values informing Western progress. China is quietly remaking the landscape of international development, economics, community, and by extension, politics. And it, it's, so, it's, doing, it's doing so in ways that progressively limit the projection of Western influence beyond the NATO bloc. In people terms, it means that for those ruled by governments that admire and even in a small way seek to replicate China's market authoritarian example, the prospects of experiencing democratic civil society are remote, perhaps even non-existent. China is, in effect, catalyst-in-chief for a profound and far-reaching process. Just as globalization is shrinking the world, China is shrinking the West. Now a comment, if I may, on a dog that didn't bark. Some 20 years ago, in 1989, a new era embracing the Western model of free market democracy failed to materialize. Instead, new ideas about capitalism brought wealth without democracy. Put simply, third world leaders are replacing the free market democratic model with a capitalism that first opens the economy to investment and permits private sector development, albeit heavily controlled by the state, and second, allows the ruling party to control government, the courts, the military, and information. Importantly, emerging markets gained wealth as they have integrated with the global community, but this has not meant greater integration with the West. In fact, emerging markets are increasingly turning to each other for business and doing more business with each other than they are with the West. These developments, new centers of economic autonomy beyond the West, and the growing appeal of illiberal capitalism are the dual engines for the diffusion of power away from the West. When added to Beijing's continuing currency manipulation, they are the key force multipliers in the global rise of China. Of course, much of China's progress is a function of the failure of the Washington Consensus in the late 80s and in the 90s. 
Countries across Africa and Latin America were worse off for following the World Bank and the IMF, one-size-fits-all prescriptions for growth. Many were left with stagnant literacy rates, high infant mortality, job loss, and declines in per capita income. As disillusion rose, the door was left open for China to gain traction using policies that actually combined the timely provision of hard currency support and non-interference in internal affairs. China benefited by providing an exit option for third world governments seeking relief from the intrusive demands of the World Bank and the IMF. China has utilized these commercial relationships to exert political leverage in international bodies, creating a group of grateful and compliant acolytes, but not, not in the Cold War sense. There is no voting bloc in the UN or other global institutions that take daily instructions from a bloc leader though Beijing does expect support on Taiwan, Tibet, sovereignty, and human rights questions. Rather, we see nations loosely collect connected by an admiration for China, a desire to capture the power of international markets, and an equal desire to remain autonomous from Western concepts of global civic culture and liberal development economics. While there is no Chinese model per se, there is a complex set of developments and reforms in China over the past 30 years that owe their success to the unique variables of China's own culture, its demography, its geography, and governing philosophies. In this sense, there's no model to speak of that can be replicated and exported to places like Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa. But in ideational terms, China is exporting something simpler and indeed more corrosive to Western preeminence than the individual nuts and bolts of this colossal 30-year transformation. And that is the basic idea of market authoritarianism. Beyond everything else that China sells to the world, it functions as the world's largest billboard advertisement for the new alternative of going capitalist and staying autocratic. Thus, Beijing provides the world's most compelling high-speed demonstration of how to liberalize economically without surrendering to liberal politics. I want to turn to Washington quickly. Before, uh, while the PRC, uh, <clears throat> with some notable exceptions, coordinated its policy towards the U.S. through Prime Minister Wen Jiabao's office, there is no, mech no mechanism representing a distilled U.S. national interest to be found in Washington as relates to China policy. Instead, China policy is hostage to Washington's designated China gangs, where we find a clash of panda huggers and panda bashers. Former Secretary of Defense Jim Schlesinger makes the point that the American-China debate is globulated. He likes that word and divided into separate lobbies and single-issue groups. Each group is concerned with a specific aspect of the China problem. Business interests, for example, like the U.S.-China Business Council, emphasize China's contribution to global progress, its importance to U.S. economic growth, and so on. Human rights people criticize China's brutal policies towards minorities, Uyghurs, Tibetans, and so on, Falun Gong, 
Environmentalists cite China as the world's largest polluter in 2008. Um, and then defense and security interests point to China's military modernization, its increased budget, and so on. Labor is another, another one of these. This menagerie of competing groups and interests is a luxury that we can no longer afford. Instead, to address the new China, I've described today, I think that Washington must consider a reorganization that brings the range of China-related issues under one roof, perhaps an extended office of China and global affairs in the NSC, from currency to trade to human rights and military questions, to the rising ideational challenge on the values informing governance. The first order of business would be a redefinition of the China challenge. Allow me to remind you that a half century ago, Roosevelt, who was thought to be endlessly clever but ultimately unwise, tried to gain clarity in a very murky moment. Driven by gratitude for World War II sacrifice and drawn by a siren song whose chorus extended from Armand Hammer, the oil magnate, to Harry Hopkins, to Harry Dexter White, FDR wanted to believe the Soviets could be made a member of the club. The hope, indeed, the expectation, was that Moscow would become more like us. The Brits and the French, for, for all of them, calculated accommodation was the order of the day. George Kennan believed something else. He saw a different pattern. His Moscow experience told him that Soviet nationalism needed an adversary, that the Soviets could not, as it were, be housebroken, that the so Soviet communism could not both embrace liberal internationalism and survive, and that indeed Western consensus-seeking language was of another time and place. He and Chip Boland and eventually Harriman and then Nitsa took the view that the Soviet challenge was unmitigated and that it would consume an entire generation and so on. We may not be to that point today. Indeed, the China challenge is quite subtle. The battle space is one of ideas, not yet territory per se, but it is a building authoritarian challenge from a fresh type of corporate state that has to be properly defined. Very quickly, in conclusion, the elements of this challenge are a negative trade balance that's gone from 43 billion in 2003 to 450 billion in 2010, a currency under, undervalued by 20 to 40 percent, a dramatic military modernization with an increase of the budget of 17.4 percent this past year, and a 6.6 .6 billion dollar global media campaign to tell China's story in 56 languages. This is, <clears throat> and most importantly, the, idea the ideational challenge, a market authoritarian form of government that dismisses democracy as plutocracy, mocks our economy's inability to regulate excess and restore jobs while asserting the superiority of authoritarianism. Um, China's 2.4 trillion is being used to shrink the West. And my point is that rising China, the China we're looking at, is not going to go away. And it might be well to revisit the moment when America finally gained focus on what it confronted with Moscow. Of course, my academic and State Department friends will say that's too early. 
there's much that can be salvaged, and perhaps. But I look at a record of the past 20 years for signs of political uh, progress. I look at the trade balance, and I don't see very much. Time is not our friend. A top-to-bottom review of U.S.-China relations should start now. Washington may not have the unilateral power that it claimed after 9-11, but it does have the power and, indeed, the expectations of others to lead. I close with a point that I'm not pessimistic. This is not a fire bell in the night, but it is a warning. Our interests, not to say our viability, are in play. China's ideational challenge does not proceed in a vacuum. Rather, it informs a new generation of leaders beyond the West, international organizations, and global strategists, such that its success will diminish the principles upon which our global standing rests. Perhaps we're content with that. Perhaps not. How we address this challenge will answer that question, and I thank you. Thank you, Steph. Bonnie? Good afternoon, and thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting me to uh, comment today on this very uh, timely and uh, important book. In 1996, Harry Rowan published an article entitled The Short March, China's Road to Democracy, which argued that China would be a democracy by 2015 or 2025 at the latest. And he based this prediction on GDP. Once China's per capita income reached about 7,000, which is the level at which Freedom House ratings showed that all previous countries had become partly free, he predicted that China would become a democracy. Now, China's per capita GDP today really still hovers around $3,000, so it may be premature to declare Rowan's forecast wrong. However, the trend is not assuring. China is almost four times as rich as it was in 1989, but it is further away from political reform than it was then. China is no longer seen as the last great communist domino waiting to fall. It is now more like a new and sustainable model for autocrats everywhere to learn from. And the challenge that this poses to the West is the thesis of uh, Halper's timely book. Now, it is true that the United States under six past presidents have hoped that China would, in Steph Halper's words, walk and talk like a Western power. But I would argue that U.S. policy has not been aimed at transforming China into a democracy, even as we hope that that is what China will eventually become. Rather, engagement, which is, of course, a means and not an end in itself, has attempted primarily to shape China's external behavior, to persuade China to adopt international norms and conform to the rules of the Western-led international system. And so in this regard, um, I certainly do not view U.S. policy toward China as a total failure, and I will return to this point later. I want to say a little bit about whether or not there's such a thing as a Beijing consensus. I think China's developmental experience contains uh, some unique elements, uh, but it really doesn't constitute a comprehensive and coherent model. It certainly isn't easily transferable abroad. In fact, the Chinese themselves 
are hotly debating whether or not there is a distinct Chinese model for development and whether it is transferable to other countries. Many say it's a work in progress and it's not ready for export. Some say the only way the model really works is to create a communist party to go along with it, which I'm sure very few countries are likely to be inclined to do. Now, lessons that can be learned about reforming communism can apply today to only a few Leninist-style party states, the DPRK, Laos, Vietnam, and Cuba. In any case, it is true that regardless of whether China is promoting a Chinese model, there is interest in many developing countries in learning from China's experience. Now, while there are some elements of the model that are especially attractive, most importantly, China's high economic growth rate, I would say there are some real downsides to China's development model. The social welfare system is one example. The Chinese dismantled the system that was put in place after 1949 to provide care for all its, its citizens, the Iron Rice Bowl. It is now just beginning to construct a new system of social welfare services. And the gap between the rural and income areas in terms of uh, income, uh, rural and urban areas in terms of income, is widening and not narrowing. Uh, according to the data published by the World Bank, the Gini coefficient in China has increased from 0.16 before the reform and opening up policy was launched in 1978 to uh, 0.47 at present, which is higher than all the developed countries and most of the developing countries. Now, Halper rightly notes that the rise of the appeal of the Chinese model in the developing world coincides with the perceived failure of Western economic development models. His chapter on the rise and fall of the Washington Consensus explains the lost decade from the late 1980s to the end of the 20th century, in which the application of structural economic reforms brought a fall in many countries' uh, annual growth rates and an increase in poverty and unemployment in some of the poorest nations in the world. He writes, the developing world was ready for an alternative to the Washington Consensus even before China went global. I agree that China poses a challenge, but the fault lies with the West. The remedy is clear. We need to get our own house in order and use our overseas development assistance more effectively. Halper also makes the point that China has strengthened its hand to no small extent in the last eight years by moving into areas that American policymakers neglected. Perhaps there are some areas where policy can be rectified um, in places where the U.S. has perhaps ignored uh, uh, the uh, specific nations. Indochina would be perhaps uh, an area that comes to mind. But Halper portrays all of Southeast Asia as being increasingly dominated by China. And I would argue that while it is true that China has opened up new markets and expanded economic cooperation with Southeast Asian nations, U.S. influence um, in much of the region is quite high. Uh, countries in the region are, in fact, eager to see greater U.S. involvement and leadership. I want to turn to the issue of soft power, which is defined by Joseph Nye as the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than through coercion or payments. And it arises from the attractiveness of a country's culture, its political ideals, and its policies. When a country's policies are seen as legitimate in the eyes of others, its soft power is enhanced. 
Nye provides many noteworthy examples. We can look at uh, Radio Free Europe built support behind the Iron Curtain, satellite TV built support in Iran today. Even Chinese students demonstrating in Tiananmen Square used a replica of the Statue of Liberty as a symbol. Now, China lags far behind the United States in soft power. Although building and promoting Chinese soft power is a major goal, I would say China has a long way to go. Its culture, policies, and political ideals are not very admired around the world. It is actively trying to build its soft power through the creation of Confucian institutes and expanding its propaganda efforts, not through attraction, but through active persuasion. And it remains to be seen whether this strategy will be effective. Finally, I want to make a few thoughts about, um, I want to convey a few thoughts on Halper's analysis of U.S. policy toward China, and I will comment mostly on what he said, uh, wrote in the book, rather than what he has told us here today, because he did lay out some important and um, useful ideas about how the United States uh, should deal with China in the future. At first, I would say, in terms of uh, the comments on the debate in Washington about China policy. It's really too simple to say that Washington is debating whether China is a partner or a rival or whether U.S. policy should be con-engagement or engagement. Um, I don't consider myself to be either a panda hugger or a dragon slayer. Um, I think that there's room uh, for views other than those two extremes. Um, Halpert chides the United States for elevating U.S.-China relations to the bilateral status of a special G2 relationship. I would say that's a false charge. No Obama administration official has ever advocated a condominium with China to solve the world's problems. Halper maintains that we should stop pretending that the West can gradually housebreak China to abide by liberal international norms and rules. Now, is this really a flawed expectation? I would say that considerable progress has been made in persuading China to adopt international norms since the late 1970s. China has joined the IMF, the World Bank, the Non-Proliferation Treaty Regime, the GATT and the WTO, the Nuclear Suppliers Group, uh, amongst many international organizations. It reports its conventional arms sales to the United Nations annually. Among permanent UNSC members, China's second only to France in the number of peacekeepers it sends to UN peacekeeping missions. It is participating in the anti-piracy operations in the Horn of Africa. China joined other UNSC members in imposing sanctions on North Korea after its nuclear test. So it would be fair to say that China's record is mixed and that there is more work to do, but it is wrong, in my opinion, to declare the effort a failure. Halper urges the U.S. to solicit the help of the rest of the world in dealing with China. He maintains that only through power coalitions and associations of key states can we hope to influence China's behavior. This is absolutely correct, and I would argue it is already being done. Examples include the six-party talks aimed at achieving denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, again, the imposition of sanctions by the U.N. on North Korea, the similar effort to impose sanctions on Iran, which is likely to yield fruit this month, the pressing of individual cases in the WTO, and discussions to rebalance the world uh, economy, including appreciating China's currency at the upcoming meeting of the G20 in Toronto in June. 
Halper also suggests that the U.S. seek to exploit China's strong aversion to international criticism of Chinese behavior and build coalitions to advance its cause. Again, this is exactly correct, and it is what the United States did, for example, in Darfur, where it built a coalition of nations that condemned the genocide of Darfur and China's support for the regime. And Beijing subsequently quietly applied some pressure to the government in Khartoum. Halper says that by managing relations with China, the United States has obscured the oncoming battle of ideas with China on the global stage. I agree that the United States should seek to reassert and sustain the primacy of Western values. But we can do this at the same time that we cooperate with China where our interests overlap and also continue efforts to persuade China to adhere to international norms and contribute to the international system in positive ways. The overall message of Halper's book, which focuses on the real challenge that China's rise poses, is correct. And I will close with a quote from Harold Meyerson, who wrote in the Washington Post last week, that in our intensifying contest with China, with much of the world still at stake, our first task is to demonstrate that democracy works. And when we don't do so, China wins. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. Ted. Thank you very much. Uh, two excellent presentations. When uh, Stefan Halper asked me to uh, look at an early draft of a manuscript of a book that he was writing on China, I greatly look forward to it because uh, having dealt with Steph for about a decade and a half, I knew that he would not easily fit into stereotypical categories in terms of his analysis of China. We've commented uh, during the course of this forum about panda huggers and panda bashers. And while it's true there are other uh, schools of thought in the uh, foreign policy community here in Washington. And Bonnie is quite correct that she does not fit into either of those two categories. Unfortunately, uh, those general descriptions do apply to a distressingly high percentage of analyses of China and the U.S.-China relationship. You have two very broad camps, one of which assumes that China ultimately will be a partner of the democratic West, that it will be, and relatively soon, a constructive stakeholder in the existing international system, and that sooner or later, economic growth, economic liberalization, will lead to political liberalization and quite likely the emergence of a full-fledged Western-style democracy. That is the, the rough description of the panda hugger camp. Ch China, in that sense, is viewed as very much a status quo power, a power with a great stake in the existing international order, a country that does not want to disrupt that order because China benefits enormously from it. The opposing camp, again, there are, there are obvious uh, uh, shades within each of these camps. The dragon slayers, or panda bashers, as I prefer to call them, take the opposite view. Uh, 
And again, there are varying degrees of intensity or hysteria. Uh, you do find some people who contend that China is already a mortal threat to the United States economically, certainly, with a uh, sizable trade deficit and supposedly a nefarious effort to undermine the U.S. economy, which, as Dr. Halper has pointed out, would be somewhat counterproductive given the fact that the United States is a very important uh, trading partner and customer of China, and that uh, a military threat is rapidly emerging. Indeed, there is one scholar at a prominent think tank in Washington that shall remain nameless that insists that China is already spending some $400 billion a year on the military and is rapidly closing the gap with the United States. Uh, it occurred to me that if China were spending $400 billion a year on the military, even taking into account uh, Marxist-Leninist inefficiencies, one would expect to see a good many uh, aircraft carrier battle groups, long-range bombers, a sizable ICBM fleet, and so on and so on. Uh, we do not see these things. And even if uh, there's been a significant financing of asymmetrical warfare, um, still, uh, it's clear that the Chinese military spending and modernization, while not insignificant, has been relatively measured. Indeed, I would argue that the Chinese military modernization has not, at least to this point, been designed to create a global military challenge, a global military rival to the United States. It is more regional and even uh, somewhat defensive in nature. In other words, the primary goal of Chinese military modernization appears to be to become strong enough that it can effectively dissuade the United States from contemplating uh, military interventions in the Western Pacific, in East Asia, that could threaten important Chinese interests. Read reunification with Taiwan at some point. So this is far different from the kind of global military challenge posed by the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany before that. The panda basher view is that China is an aggressively revisionist power, that it wants to, at some point, overturn the current global order. And again, that kind of duality uh, bothers me. The notion that China either has to be a status quo power or an aggressively revisionist power. When I view China, I see a cautiously revisionist power, a power that wants to adjust the current international order strategically and economically to China's advantage, but not pose a direct challenge to the United States. And I think if we view the relationship in those terms, that is far more productive than the kinds of stereotypes that we see all too often in the literature on China. Stefan Halper's book, The Beijing Consensus, I think strikes a, a very impressive balance between those two extremes. He does not minimize China's economic challenge, but he doesn't overstate it either. 
He doesn't ignore the military modernization and military buildup, but again, he doesn't see this as a, uh, an impending dire threat to the U.S. global position. And then there is the matter of dealing with the other kind of challenge, the ideational challenge that he describes. I think that is one of the biggest contributions of this book to the literature on China and the U.S.-China relationship. And again, he does not oversimplify matters. He doesn't portray this as the great ideological offensive that the Soviet Union tried to implement. It's much more subtle. It's much more nuanced. But it does pose a significant challenge to the U.S. position in the international system, to the U.S., the American idea in the world community. And we have to take that challenge seriously and meet it in an effective fashion. He also points out, and I couldn't agree with him more, that many of the problems the United States has had, many of the opportunities afforded to China in this ideational realm are self-inflicted wounds by the United States and its allies. China did not force the United States to launch a totally unnecessary war in Iraq and dissipate our political unity and our economic strength. China did not compel the United States to mismanage the war in Afghanistan and engage in an overcommitment that has alienated more and more of the Muslim world. The United States did those things to itself. China did not compel the George W. Bush administration to engage in incredibly abrasive behavior that has managed to alienate longtime friends of the United States. American political leaders did that all by themselves. China did not compel the United States to mismanage its financial system, to engage in utterly reckless deficit spending by the federal government, imperiling our future fiscal and financial health, and giving China a considerable amount of leverage in the relationship that it would not otherwise have. U.S. leaders did that all by themselves. So we can correct many of those problems, and that step by itself would be a significant improvement in terms of our ability to meet this new challenge by China. I do take issue with Dr. Halper's subtitle in his book, Why China's Authoritarian Model Will Dominate the 21st Century. I would argue that a better title would have been Why China's Authoritarian Model Could Dominate or Might Dominate the 21st Century. Much depends both on developments in China, and let's remember that China has some rather serious internal problems, and maintaining this growth rate to sustain the bargain between the Communist Party 
and the Chinese public. Stay out of politics, and we will guarantee vigorous economic growth and a better standard of living year after year for the Chinese people. That bargain is not going to be all that easy to keep in the future. We also need to understand that China faces international challenges. As its international profile rises, some of the resentment directed against the West can begin to be directed against China. And I think we're just beginning to see some of the early stages of that. The United States might respond to this challenge with new policies and far more intelligent policies. All of that could make the notion of the inevitability of the Beijing authoritarian model uh, moot. Secondly, while I think Dr. Helper does a very good job analyzing uh, the appeal of the Chinese model in various parts of the world, to me, uh, the future characteristics of the international system will largely be determined by outcomes in a small number of nations. What happens in India especially, a country that is now democratic but does not have deep democratic roots and a strong civil society. In Indonesia, in Russia, in some mid-sized powers such as Ukraine, Vietnam, at some point probably a united Korea. If those countries thoroughly, firmly embrace a democratic market capitalist model, then the, the international system's norms will be democratic market and capitalism. What happens in those countries, Brazil I would add to that of course, um, what happens in those countries is far, far more important than what happens in Bolivia, Botswana, or in Bosnia, in countries of that size. That's where the victory of this battle of ideas will be won or lost. Dr. Halper has written a very important book. I've described it as certainly one of the most important books on China and the U.S.-China relationship in the past decade. He has done a great service with that. It's already getting a good deal of attention, a number of book reviews. It deserves to get a lot more. And we're very happy here at the Cato Institute to provide the first book forum here in Washington to start the discussion about what U.S. policy toward China needs to be in the coming decades. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Steph, uh, we want to get to Steph. We want to get to questions, but would you like to take three or four minutes, and just briefly respond to the comments? Sure, sure, I can do that. Shall I uh, do it from here? Either one is fine. Um, first of all, thank you both very much for uh, a good critique. Um, and I, I wanted to say, Ted, that um, uh, following a conversation we had during the time I was writing this book about pivot powers, um, in which you made the point that India, Brazil, 
Indonesia were critical powers. They were pivot powers in terms of whether uh, these market authoritarian ideas uh, gained traction and uh, momentum. And I, I, I revised the text to uh, reflect uh, the, the, this, this discussion that we had. Second thing is, is a, a more of a lighter note. Uh, I nearly broke my contract with the publisher over the subtitle. <laughs> I strongly objected to the subtitle. It was, uh, as you say, it, it, it is uh, entirely too categorical. I was hoping it could say something like how China's model will impact the 20th century, 21st century. But anyway, I just want to say I agree with that very much. Um, uh, there, uh, if I just, if I might respond f to Bonnie for a moment, um, on uh, the China model, of course, I, I do emphasize throughout that there is no China model per se. Uh, it is a China example, and people take bits and pieces of it. Uh, Iran, for example, was fascinated with the way China manages the Internet, and they sent people over to have a look and took portions of that for their own use. Um, other countries have taken other things, but this is uh, uh, what I was referring to here. Uh, and yes, of course, uh, it's not a perfect example. The social welfare services uh, are uh, a disaster, and they're being improved, but uh, that's not uh, more than likely something another country would want to replicate. Um, as far as um, the um, – oh, let's see. Oh, yes. In terms of U.S. policy, um, I, I'm not suggesting that U.S. policy has been – utterly misdirected and completely useless. I think we've had uh, uh, some success. We've offered some guidance. Uh, we have encouraged China to join the international system, and they have become members, uh, dealt with the IMF, World Bank, GATT, and so on. But the point I would make here is that they didn't do this because we asked them to. It wasn't a function of U.S. persuasion. It was because accepting relationships with these institutions was a practical and convenient and beneficial thing for China to do in terms of its specific development objectives. China uh, was not embracing uh, global norms and ethics and uh, standard operating behavior. It was moving to secure its own advantage by linking in to the international system. I think I'll, I'll leave it there and, and let others uh, offer questions. We'd like to move to questions. I ask first that you wait for the microphone to come, and second, if you state your name and your affiliation. So why don't we bring one down here? Um, is it working? Yeah, uh, Paul Sloan, uh, a retired American. <laughs> Uh, for Ms. Glazer and possibly Alper, can you compare and contrast to today and any similarities just before the revolution in uh, 1948 of the haves and have-nots? And it seems that the totalitarian government today is similar to, uh, to uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And also, if you could 
discuss the endemic corruption in, in China and its effects? Want me to go first? Sure. Well, I don't have any uh, data here with me, but there was certainly uh, a wide gap between uh, people who – the haves and the haves-nots uh, before the revolution in China. Um, whether it is, it is worse today, <laughs> um, I don't know. But you really did have this period, of course, immediately after the, uh, the revolution in 1949 where there was sort of a leveling out of, uh, of incomes, and that has gradually widened, and particularly – over the last decade, and really since the launching of reform in '78, um, it is uh, it has widened uh, substantially. Uh, the second, your second question was about corruption. Um, I believe that uh, corruption is endemic in China. It is. Uh, it is. I would say it's not part of the communist system. It is. It is almost part of Chinese culture. There are many Chinese systems around the world that are just as corrupt. I think Taiwan, for example, has really struggled with getting rid of their own corruption. They have made some progress, but as we saw with the last Taiwan president, Chen Shui-bian, um, he uh, obviously stole a lot of, of money from the, from the people. Um, so uh, this is a problem many countries have, but in China it is, um, it, it is part of the way of doing business. There is no way that you can close a deal and, and very difficult even to get a child into school or get somebody a job without paying in some way for it. And that give and take is very much part of this system and part of the culture, I think is a real challenge for them to eliminate in the future. Steph, do you want to add anything? Um, only that um, this is a, a very good point, a very good question. I agree with Bonnie. Uh, corruption is endemic in Chinese culture. It it, you can see it in all Chinese communities. They call it guanxi, so on. But uh, there were uh, massive demonstrations against corruption, against the misuse of party power and selling of land that didn't belong to the party. In 2005, there were 58,000 uh, different protests across the country. In 2006, there were 64,000. 2007, there were 78,000, and they stopped issuing that statistic in 2008. Uh, point being, these are not major convulsive demonstrations, but they're demonstrations in which there was violence generally about local corruption and the police were called. So, yeah, it's a, really, it's a major issue. And it's not unlike what happened under Shanka Shack. If we could go to the second row or third row, I think you're on the right. Thank you. Uh, my name is Isabella Chen. I work for U.S.-China Business and Culture Exchange Center. Um, I have uh, questions about democracy to Ms. Glazer. Um, I, um, I agree with you. You said um, uh, the United States should democracy, uh, I'm sorry, should demo uh, demonstrate the uh, power of democracy in the world. Uh, but I'm curious about your response to an argument which compared with uh, uh, India compare India with China, because India and China are the most uh, populated country in the world. But in terms of poverty and uh, newborn baby mortality, India's problem is much more serious than China. So how you respond to that? Um, uh, India is a democrat, uh, democratic country. 
um, of course. And my second question about uh, the young generation. Uh, do you think if the uh, the people uh, who born in after like 1980, when they grow up in, in future, they entered into the political stage, uh, if that will bring more democracy to China because they're kind of Western Western influenced and uh, ask more freedom? Thank you. Okay, very good questions. Uh, the younger generation. I certainly hope that the younger generation in China will demand uh, more participation in the political system and a more responsible government. Uh, that is one possibility, um, not necessarily the only uh, possibility. I do think that there is a very um, strong sense in China that uh, economic growth is the most important thing, and many people uh, perhaps an uh, overwhelming majority, um, are willing, at least at this point in time, to sacrifice um, other things in order to continue to sustain that growth. In India, they're not willing to do that. Uh, and so that's the, choice of the, that's the choice that the people make. Uh, I, I think that uh, China's you know, so-called model of having an authoritarian and repressive regime uh, would not be welcome in India, even if you asked the people, if you held a referendum and said, we could give you this kind of growth, would you like to have a communist system? My name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBGC. Two brief questions. The first is that in, I think, all the speakers assume that there is one group of men in Beijing with a singular outlook. So uh, my question is, is, the first question is, is the diversity among uh, Chinese rulers as not at least as wide as it is in any other significant world power? And the second is, even if you uh, grant that the yuan is undervalued, would we really want them to let it float? Would this be probably be even worse for America than um, the continuation of the current alleged undervalue. Ted, would you like to start out? Yeah, if I could take the second part of that uh, question first. I think there's a tendency in the United States to seek scapegoats for a lot of our own economic problems. Uh, we saw it in the 1980s. It was uh, Japanese unfair trade practices. We see it now with China. If only we could get them to... Uh, revalue the currency and lower a few uh, non-tariff barriers, uh, many of our problems would, would uh, be solved. I th I'm not going to argue that the current value of the Chinese currency is, is fair or accurate. For one thing, that's outside my area of expertise. I think it is undervalued. How much, that's, that's very hard to tell. But uh, if we think that would be a panacea, that that would just cause our uh, economic growth rate to rocket upward, uh, I think we're, we're deluding ourselves. Within any authoritarian system, there, there is always a diversity of views within the leadership elite, but it's very hard to measure for obvious reasons. You know, again, I suspect within the Communist Party hierarchy in Beijing, there's probably a rather wide range of views. There certainly was in the late 1980s during the uh, period leading up to the uh, Tiananmen Square episode. Um, whether that is as extensive today, very hard to tell. But uh, it is a mistake to assume that the leadership elite, 
even within a highly authoritarian system, is a monolith. We do have to uh, be a lot more uh, sophisticated than that in our analysis. Steph? I would just uh, make the point that um, you see the differences in the Chinese leadership uh, when you see the different positions that the Bank of China and the Department of Commerce have on the question of allowing the yuan to rise. The Bank of China seems to be in favor. Commerce Department, which has connections with business people, seems to be opposed. So, yes, there's a real spectrum, and that's an example of this argument on, on the yuan. May I just refer to one previous question? The question was raised about this new generation in uh, China, people born after 1980. And I think uh, in my recent trips to China, talking to that new generation, uh, these young people are very career-oriented. They're very interested in employment. Uh, they're talking about what, where they're going to buy a, a condominium or an apartment. Uh, the idea of having a car is very exciting. Uh, and uh, I do not have the sense that there is a sort of ideological or uh, uh, political drive in this generation. Yes, we see people who are uh, wall jumpers on the Internet, and, and there's a lot of resistance to the uh, idea of pushing Google out and so on. But this is a generation that seems to me to be quite material, uh, career-oriented, and in some ways, strangely, uh, except on issues of the United States or Japan where there's a big nationalist question, they, de they tend to be less political than one would have expected. Bonnie, did you want to jump in? It's okay. Take another question. Okay. Uh, Will Amatruda. Uh, if I may comment on the parallel that an earlier questioner made about today's China with China of the late Chiang Kai-shek period, uh, you can certainly draw parallels regarding inequality and corruption, but one huge difference is, of course, that uh, from 1911 to 1949, uh, China was engaged in almost permanent military conflict, both internal and external, whereas uh, uh, under the Communist Party rule, once the Korean War ended in 1953, you've had over 50 years of peace with the exception of two relatively brief border skirmishes with India in 1962, with Vietnam, North Vietnam in, in 1979. Uh, it's, it's an enviable record compared to the U.S. record during that period. Take your point. More questions? If we can go over the uh, first row. <laughs> Uh, I'm a little surprised that nobody's mentioned what, what I've read. Is What's your name, if you could just I'm state I'm it for Sorry, I'm George Lawrence, and I'm representing only myself. Thank you. Uh, that the uh, Chinese has a, the China has a uh, um, morbid uh, prognosis for its demographics, that the population is aging very rapidly. There are not going to be enough productive workers take care of these people, that worker, individual worker productivity is not rising at a commensurate rate, and that that by itself can, can, can do in the whole enterprise. So. Bonnie, do you want to start us on that? Uh, yeah. Any thoughts? Uh, I will. Certainly, um, uh, Steph referred to 
the challenges, and I think Ted did also, the challenges that China faces. That is absolutely one of them. Uh, the demographic situation is, is, is a great challenge, especially where you have a country that has enforced, I think, since 1976, a one-child policy, which now they're beginning to loosen up to some extent. Uh, they may allow uh, people in the cities to have two children. People in the countryside have been able to have two children all along. And they've revised the law that so that now if you if you have a, a husband and a wife who are both only children, that they uh, can have two children. Uh, but the demographics are, are challenging. Of course, uh, there are other countries that face difficult demographic challenges uh, as well. Japan uh, comes to mind. Um, there are certainly some countries in Europe. I think actually Taiwan is probably even worse off right now than, than China is. But uh, your, your, your point is certainly well taken, and if we added to the list of challenges that China faces, we would, of course, want to look at the uh, very serious environmental degradation that has taken place in the country and the challenges uh, that that has posed, obviously the corruption, which was raised earlier. Uh, so their, their challenges really are quite daunting, and, and, I, and I agree with you on that. Steph, do you want to add anything? Yeah, it, it's an interesting point. Uh, the, the most striking <laughs> statistic on that is that between – uh, the ages of 19 and 24 uh, in uh, rural China, there are 20 percent more men. Um, and that means that you have, uh, in some cases, sort of groups of men who are unmarried, un, uh, really attached to families. And uh, so there's, there, there, there are inconsistencies in employment patterns. Uh, the Chinese are trying to export some of these people to other countries for jobs. Um, and there are also uh, 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 programs or arrangements in which women are being uh, imported to, to live in those areas just so they could begin to create families. Uh, so th there's a lot of peculiarities about the one-child one, one and male preference policy. Well, do the far back. My name is Megan Shank. I'm a freelance writer for Newsweek and other publications. I'm wondering, in your estimation, what kind of impact has U.S. education had on the liberalization of Chinese who are in power now in terms of the CCP leadership? And what impact might, they have, might this um, education have on returnees who are going back today? Thank you. Well, you know, they say that there are um, the folks in the Chinese foreign ministry are so pro-American or so inclined to be pro-American that they're, they're walled off from the rest of the uh, uh, political process. Um, we may not think of them that way, but that's the way their, their colleagues often do. Many of these folks are educated in the United States. Uh, I have large numbers of Chinese uh, in my classes at Cambridge in England. Uh, they are very able. They come from all walks of life, military, foreign, uh, foreign office, and so on. Uh, the theory, of course, is that the more of these people we educate, the better uh, they can accommodate to global norms and institutions. Uh, what kind of scope they have on the ground in Beijing to do that uh, is really unclear. Uh, as I say, this, the, the foreign ministry is sometimes ostracized. Uh, they say U.S. doesn't need an embassy here. They've, we've got the foreign ministry. 
Bonnie, did you want to chime in on this? Yeah, I would just add that I think that that educating people from China has had a significant impact um, in terms of probably helping China uh, develop faster as those people have chosen not to stay here uh, but increasingly to go back uh, to China and contribute to the development of their country. And I think that there's really stronger forces at work here um, among those people in the area of uh, their own history and uh, their own education that they even received when they were children. Uh, and, and, and I'm referring here to the century of humiliation that, that China suffered uh, from the mid-19th uh, to the mid-20th century. And this is um, indelibly um, etched in the minds of uh, all Chinese. And so I think that there is this really strong commitment that Chinese have to making their country be a great power uh, once again. And uh, perhaps that just um, outweighs the influence of the values that they may have been to some extent inculcated with in the few years that they spent studying here. Yeah, I would say that is a, a prime example of soft power by the United States, the exposure of uh, the brightest segment of the Chinese population to American values, to Western values. Uh, and I think that that is extremely useful. It's, it's a subtle process, but it's, it's a very important one. I might feel even better if so many of the Chinese students were not educated at some of our more extreme <laughs> left universities where you know, they may discover that uh, the attitudes there are further to the left than what they find. They may turn them into real communists. <laughs> <laughs> If you could wait, wait for the, the thing, please. My name is Todd Pierce. I'm representing myself. How much credibility does the United States have left in the world to make these types of arguments when after the, you know, the previous administration we repudiated all these so-called Western values I've heard mentioned a number of times, human rights law, uh, Geneva Conventions, on and on. I don't think I need to list those. Uh, same time, 2003, we had people trumpeting how we'd gather, we'd gain oil by conquering Iraq and pay for the occupation, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, China was contracting, you know, acquiring oil the old-fashioned way by contracting with countries like Canada, our neighbor, for oil. And, and then, in fact, the, even after we conquered Iraq, they get the benefits of the contracting for oil in Iraq besides. So how much credibility do we have anymore in the world? Or are we just beginning to look like the world's sole superpower of hypocrisy? Did you want to lead off? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, that's part of the uh, phenomenon of the self-inflicted wounds that I talked about. And unfortunately, it's not just the previous administration. This is a, a problem that's gone back a long time. There are people in uh, the Persian Gulf area who remember the U.S. coup against the democratically elected government in Iran in 1953. So this is uh, a problem of image and substance that that goes back a good many decades. Well, the best way to deal with that is to correct the problem, to start now, to modify the behavior, and uh, create a much better impression in the world of U.S. behavior. There's been this big gap between professed American values and actual U.S. behavior. Uh, I noted at one point that the United States had used military force in a significant manner on 10 separate occasions in the two decades since the end of the Cold War. I mean, that, that's so wildly in excess of the conduct of any other country in the international system, and it creates a foul image of the United States worldwide. That's the kind of conduct that we have to correct right away. Bonnie? 
I would just add that uh, there clearly has been a an increase in sort of what we call the favorability rating of the United States around the world since the Obama administration came into power. If you do some comparisons of the, uh, for example, the Pew polls that are done every year, you look at uh, the uh, how many people view U.S. policy as favorable or unfavorable, you'll find that in 2009, 17 out of uh, 20 countries uh, that were polled, the percentage of the people that viewed the U.S. favorably had increased, some of them from some rather low levels, um, and in some cases the the increase is not really substantial. Uh, but I would certainly agree uh, with Ted and with the, with the basis of, 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 of your question that it is U.S. policy that has uh, been a problem that in and it does go back really before the uh, the George W. Bush administration, and uh, that I, I think this president has recognized that the credibility of the United States um, has been wounded and damaged, and is trying to make some changes in that area. Shutting down the Guantanamo uh, Bay uh, uh, prison, I think, is one example. Steph, do you want to add anything? Well, I would only add this: uh, uh, having lived in England. Uh, since 2001, uh, teaching at Cambridge, we found shortly after George Bush uh, invaded Iraq that we had to wear a helmet if we went to a <laughs> dinner party. And uh, we were pretty clear we'd come away at the end of the evening with dents in it. Uh, but since Obama's been elected, uh, there is this sense that America is effectively reintroducing itself uh, to to Europe at least. It's, it's obviously not going all that smoothly, but it is a very different attitude, and you can now go to dinner without a helmet. <laughs> First row over. Uh... Name Doug McPherson, representing myself. Uh, do you want me to hold it? Um, would it help to, uh, to consider a mercantilist model for China? You can then tie its behavior back to England in the 18th and 19th centuries and perhaps get guidance as to what they'll be doing next. Steph? Yeah, um, <clears throat> this is a very good point, and um, I try to um, address this in, in uh, my book, The Beijing Consensus, by pointing out that uh, we don't have clean hands on this. Major powers in need of resources uh, have not got clean hands, particularly as it relates to Africa and, and the Near East. Um, the mercantile model uh, does work very well. We pursued these countries for the resources, uh, and we uh, left them in a condition which is, was worse than when we arrived. The difference, however, is that in the 19th century, when these policies were promulgated, uh, these areas of the third world were thought to be populated by barbarians. They were thought to be primitive tribes. And it was a very different worldview. Today, we look at these areas as developing societies. And we, we have names for these countries, and we know their leaders. So we have a greater obligation to view our responsibility of drawing them into a productive part of the international system and benefiting uh, from the uh, uh, goods of, uh, available in the West and through the information process and so on. And the, the charge is that that is what China is not doing, that, that China is, is simply not accepting that responsibility 
or that obligation. Ed, do you want to add anything? The one thing I would add is uh, the mercantilist model uh, has that superficial appeal, but it generally doesn't work well for anybody, including the major power that's trying to apply it. It certainly doesn't work well for uh, colonies or de facto economic colonies. Another area where I think we have to be very careful is not to assume that we have the answer through our foreign aid programs. Uh, Steph, I think, uh, correctly noted the, the backlash, the resentment at the World Bank and the IMF. And that backlash is absolutely warranted. Uh, the record of those two institutions, uh, the record is absolutely dreadful. But the record of America's bilateral foreign aid programs is not significantly better. And, in fact, what we've tended to do with our foreign aid programs, whether intentionally or not, is very often to entrench corrupt, repressive political elites in power in the recipient countries and actually create disincentives for needed economic reforms. Uh, this track record is something that has not improved America's image in the world, and it certainly has not improved the overall economic state of most recipient countries. Bonnie, would you like to add anything? Um, I would just add one point, and that is that um, there's also a positive story to tell about China's uh, overseas uh, development aid uh, the assistance that it's provided, particularly to some countries in Africa where it's really contributed to uh, investing in infrastructure, um, road, roads and railways, and uh, built hospitals, uh, things of that nature. Uh, where I would be um, extremely critical would be in the lack of uh, transparency that the Chinese have and not <coughs> publishing any figures about how much aid they give. Um, there's been less investment in uh, things like stadiums in recent years. Um, I think that the Chinese are actually listening to the developing countries and are trying uh, to do a better job. But I think that they need to coordinate more um, with the West and particularly OECD countries um, who have tried to engage China to coordinate uh, assistance. And I think that there are, as Steph says in his book, there are some things we might learn from China and certainly some things that the Chinese might learn from the West. We have time for one more question. Yeah, why don't we come here? <clears throat> Michael Powell, I was wondering if you guys could discuss the role of uh, popular culture as it regards to soft power. Who would like to start? I, I would just say the U.S. has an enormous advantage in that. Uh, there's almost no question about that. That has been uh, sometimes not always uh, beneficial, one of the strongest elements of American influence in the world. And uh, that's something that the Chinese will have a great deal of, of trouble providing uh, uh, potent competition for at least a very long time. Steph? Avatar was number one in Beijing this past weekend. <laughs> and Bruce Springsteen was disinvited to perform in July. So there you have two sides of it. Uh, you know, our popular culture is 
complex. Some of it's acceptable to the Chinese. Others they find uh, threatening. Uh, but if you look at the blossoming of uh, the uh, visual arts in China, uh, painters and musicians and others, uh, a lot of it is an attempt to emulate, broadly speaking, Western uh, artistic style. And certainly they're very much enamored with Taiwanese and Hong Kong renditions of Western music. So, yeah, it's a very powerful dimension. Joe Nye has a lot to say about this. Bonnie? The biggest competitors to U.S. pop culture, which uh, is far and away, I think, the uh, most admired around the world. Uh, but in Asia, the biggest competitors are uh, Japan, Japanese, you know, anime, comic books, very, very popular, um, Taiwanese uh, pop music, uh, so, you know, China just doesn't, doesn't just lag far behind the United States. I think it also has far less soft power than lots of other countries in Asia do because the Asian audiences, I think, in addition to looking at U.S. pop, pop culture, are attracted really to Asian, other forms of Asian pop culture. South Korea's, for, for example, um, uh, films and soap operas, things of that nature, are very, very popular in China as well. Please join and give a round of applause to our participants. And we have lunch upstairs, so if you want to proceed up the next floor and grab a sandwich.